Hello and welcome to episode number five of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Today I'm going to be speaking with director Midge Constant. Midge produced and directed the award-winning feature documentary, Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, which had its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival and its international premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in 2019. Midge was nominated for Best First-Time Director by the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards, and the film received multiple other awards and nominations. Here is the trailer. sound adds to picture is so exhilarating. It's really half the movie. Movies sight and sound. You only express it with sight and sound. The point is to convey an emotion. <laughs> Film sound is an illusionary art. in many ways is more tied to imagination. Film sound work wasn't always like that, with dozens of sound editors editing thousands of tracks. But when it all started, movies were silent. Then in 1927, they actually recorded dialogue on the set. Wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. And of course it was a gigantic sensation. Sound was taking root in a new American renaissance of movies in a way that had never been heard before. We were exploring the unknown. It's been very valuable in the evolution of humans' relationship to the cosmos. Your job is to come up with the unimaginable. You want the audience to feel the pain. Sound is still the best way to experience emotion. It's part of being human. You feel those goosebumps, then you've done it right. It's the single most labor-intensive editing process I've ever experienced. The work you all do makes these moments eternal. Midge has been a feature film sound editor in Hollywood for decades, having worked at every major studio. She's collaborated on the soundtracks with filmmakers such as John Waters, David Wolper, Kenneth Branagh, Tony Scott, and Jerry Bruckheimer. Two of the films, Crimson Tide and Armageddon, for which she edited effects and dialogue, received Academy Award nominations for sound editing. Currently, Midge is a professor of cinematic arts at USC where she holds the K. Rose Endowed Chair in the Art of Sound and Dialogue Editing. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers of all stripes with its array of benefits and services. Visit FC at filmmakerscollab.org to learn more. And if you're enjoying these conversations, please remember to subscribe, review, and share. And now, on to my conversation with Midge Costin. And joining me now on Making Media Now is sound designer Midge Costin. And Midge is also the director of a fantastic documentary 
called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. Midge, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. It's great to be talking with you. First off, before I, before I forget, and so I don't forget, let people know where they can find this fantastic movie, and then we'll dive into having a conversation about the movie. Right. Well, it's on Amazon Prime and then most, you know, cable stations or whatever you, you can you can find it. Um, it's good to know. I watched it on YouTube, actually. You did? Oh, yeah. YouTube. That's yeah. Yeah. Hulu. It's on a lot of different outlets. I'm so bad. I'm a bad. Um, I'm ba- a bad marketing person. I'm producer, but more like one of the producers. But it's my other producers who are better at marketing. I, I got you. It's, it's funny. It's it was a movie that I felt. I listened to it with headphones on and I felt it was almost mandatory to listen to it with headphones. Oh, I know. Well, you know, we really wanted it to get to the theater because you know, that, that sequence where it go, where Walter Murch talks about, we never worked on, when he's worked on the Godfather, you know, you don't, that was a mono film. And so when he worked on Apocalypse Now and Francis Ford Coppola pushed them to do something, you know, that would be multi-track. They, he said, Walter Murch says, we never worked on, um, uh, none of the mixers, the re-recording mixers had worked on anything but mono, let alone stereo. And then it goes to stereo. And then it says, let alone surround. And it goes into 5.1. Just his voice. It's so fun to hear. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And it's like, it's, the difference is sort of like, you know, in, in the Wizard of Oz, when they go from black and white to color, except that all that's, all that's happening in your ears. Yes, exactly. That that's such a great uh, comparison. Yeah. So I want to I want to back up just a bit and talk talk about your history, how you came to be a sound designer. Yeah. Okay. So it's the last thing I thought I would do when I was in film school, and this is why I had to make this film, and I wanted to make it a long time ago, but there was no such thing as fair use. Um, and fair use is when you can use material that's. Um, uh, um, you know, copyrighted you, as long as you use it and transform it, then you, you, you don't pay for it. Otherwise we never would have made it, but we wouldn't have been able to afford to make the film. Yeah. I will say you you made amazing use of fair use. Your film is so rich with, I mean, it, it is just a greatest hits collection of cinema for, from the past 70 years. I learned so much about the history of, of sound, you know, let alone, uh, I mean, the history of film, let alone sound, because, you know, when you're working in a field, sometimes you don't know the history of it. But what happened to me is I was in film school and the last, I mean, sound just always panicked me. It seemed just like it was a technical thing you did at the end of the movie. And I literally would have like panic attacks. And so when I, in my last year at film school, I was making my thesis and I actually came out and I was working as an apprentice editor, assistant editor, and, um, and the thesis is hanging over me and I needed money. And I always say, I, I, a friend, one of my close friends at film school had become a sound editor, calls me up one day and says, Midge, uh, none of the union guys will touch 16 millimeter at the sound house. And it was a producer who gave him a lot of work, but this was after school kids special and it was 16 millimeter, which is what we did at film school. And he said, Midge, if you come in, I'll teach you how to cut effects and I'll cut the dialogue. And so I, I always say that I lowered myself and took a sound job. But once I started working on it and I realized, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for setting the tone and the mood and everything. And so I took it really seriously, you know, and um, I realized that I had 
you know, I had it in me. And you know what? I, I, I studied, I played the guitar. I always sang in chorus and choir and everything. And so I had this background. And in fifth grade, I asked for, I think it's fifth grade, I asked for Christmas for a little recorder, reel to reel, you know, one of these little kind of toy ones almost. But, and um, I used to do things with it. And I realized when I was making this movie, that all the big sound designers, they all talked about getting some kind of recorder when they were kids. Absolutely. And Walter, Walter March has a theory that between the ages of 11 and 14, whatever you were doing for kind of fun, it's a related to what you end up doing for a career. If you I like used to do this thing where I would, um, well, I used to pretend I was a DJ. And I would sit there with my, with my record player and my, uh, I don't even know, oh, it was a cassette recorder. And do my play, record, into do the intros over the songs. And I would have it just so this was back my, um, I would say my, the model that I worked off of was the AM radio model where you sort of talked over the first 15 seconds or so of the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, I used to do, I, used, I would great. do a weekly countdown and it was, it was great fun. So where were you going to film school? I was at USC, the University of Southern California, okay. where now I teach. I'm really a um, professor. I've been a professor since 2000 <laughs> um, at, at USC. And the, the thing is, just like this movie, it's like, I can't, I'm so excited to teach people because I dreaded sound so much and didn't realize how important it was for, you know, for story, for mood and tone, for plot points, for, you know, um, character reflection. And so I, even in like the nineties at the height of my working on these big action adventure movies, I'd always try to teach a class at night at USC to say, here, take these skills that I now have. It's, it's better than you think you learn the technical but you're really making film. So even as, you know, it's like cinematographers, they're filmmakers, you know, production designer, they're filmmakers, sound people, they're filmmakers. So we're, we're a part of a big collaborative and, and that's the fun. You know, I grew up in a big Irish Catholic family in Lynn, Lynn in the hot. And, um, and so, you know, it was all for one and one for all. And that's what filmmaking is. And if you don't have that kind of spirit and, you know, that kind of work ethic, I think um, film is not the right place to be. It's super collaborative. So, you, so you mentioned some big name, big name films that you worked on in the nineties and they are, they certainly are a big name film. So just uh, let our listeners know what some of those titles are. Yeah. So I worked on a lot of kind of Jerry Berkheimer films like, um, so, uh, and Michael Bay, Armageddon, The Rock, uh, Crimson Those are not Tide, quiet films. <laughs> but sometimes we get a bad reputation because of that. But also story is so important in those films. And like Crimson Tide was one of the favorite ones that I worked on. Um, and that's a wonderful story and really important, you know, cause you're in a, you're in a submarine for most of the movie. So like, what's the sound? And, and even, you know, in, in a film like that, think about it, cause they're on a stage most of the time, right? That you have to even take out their footsteps because they're walking on plywood. You know what I mean? So sure. it's like you're getting in there and doing a little kind of anti foleying. <laughs> yeah. Well, to take that out so the foley can stand out, you know, and sure. do its thing. And then also, like, yeah, but every, every, just like they had every, every um, kind of space that you're in had a different lighting. And we had to think about what's the sound going to be like. And you have to raise the tension, you know, um, when, when they're in trouble. And so we're always thinking like effects, like what are, what are we doing? Um, so it's, you know, but so fun to help tell the story. Story. But and the other thing is that people don't think for some reason as human beings, it's kind of at the beginning of our film, you know, we think we're getting all our information from, vi you know, from visuals and from our eyes and it's our ears are giving us so much. And we know this 
with music. We know it with music, but you have to think about the same thing every day. You're getting you're you're getting this input from your environment and it's affecting your physically, mentally, emotionally. And so to use that creatively is just so fun. And it's I'm so excited to be able to tell people because it's 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 one of your senses. You know, so have some awareness about how you're really being affected and then use it um, you know, in films and television and storytelling, you know, podcasting. It's like, wow, it's super important um sound, you know. So very true. So after after your first job uh working as a sound engineer, did you ever go back to uh wanting to be a uh, picture editor or you were down the sound path from well, that point on? Yeah, I in fact that's exactly what happened. I I started Started to what happened is I worked on a um, here I am on my first picture and this is good for students I think to know for for kids to know it's um, I'm working on my first sound that job that I was talking about and then they just kept me on because well one thing is I was getting paid so little so they just kept me on and I went from 16 millimeter to 35 millimeter which everyone was using in Hollywood and then I get a call from an editor who I had assisted an apprentice with and he said Midge I'm leaving to work on a TV show will you come and finish the film? It's just putting in the opticals. And so I said to him, which is kind of, you know, gutsy in a way, I said, uh, who's doing the sound? And he said, uh, we don't know yet. And I said, I'll take the job if I can be supervising sound editor. Good for you. And the reason I did it was I knew that I had people to back me up who would, who would help me. You know, it's not like I went in there and then I was going to fail because I know me and I know I'm not going to fail. That was how my parents brought me up. I'm not going to say I can do something when I, I knew that like my friends would help me. I knew enough sound editors now um, that if I didn't know something, they would. And so I became supervising sound editor on like my, it was probably like the third film that I, that I worked on sound. So it was, yeah. I'm always interested in hearing what filmmakers and aspiring filmmakers point to as the movie that made them want to make movies. Can you remember? You know what? I, when I was, I I went to actually Smith college in Massachusetts and um, I took a film class and um, I saw the short, Oh God, I had a nervous breakdown because of it. Night and fog about the concentration camps Alan Renee's film. And I was so blown away by that. Um, the, the, the visuals and also the sound, I didn't realize how much I was being affected by sound that my friends had to stay up with me because I really, I think I was having a nervous breakdown and I was so powerful that brought my attention to film. And then I saw, um, you know, a lot of films in that film class were important, but I think later it was, I think it might've been David Lynch's eraser head. It just okay. blew me away. Yeah. I just loved it. And it, I don't know what, you know, it just, it just blew me away. I just, I just thought that is great. And he's, he just loves He sound. gets some he's, prominent screen time in your film. Yes, he does. Yeah. He was the first, he was the first big director that I got. Like some of them I knew through kind of USC, some of them I knew through, uh, it, it was really their sound people that got the, the, um, d- the directors. I was actually given the, I hold the Kate Rose endowed chair at USC that was given by um, George Lucas and, and Steven Spielberg. And they know who I am. And, um, but really it was Gary Rydstrom and Walter Murch and people, all these guys were actually graduates of USC. At some point we got criticized about, it looks like a USC promotional film. So I had to even take <laughs> out about that Gary was actually at USC, but I think it's because we care about sound and you can go to film schools and they don't teach sound, you know, yeah. and USC, has always it's been a really important part of the program your film is such a who's who 
of just, you know, a panoply of some of the greatest directors. Spielberg is in there and uh, George Lucas is in there and Peter Weir, one of my favorite directors. Oh, I love Peter Weir. I'm so glad you said that. I know. I love him. Yeah. You know, a film that, that I think my favorite film of his, which I don't think it was a big hit, uh, but Fearless. It was made in the early 90s with Jeff Bridges. And there is a sequence uh, of a plane crash in that film, in the sound, and you're in his head as, and I'll never, I'll never, I I saw the movie multiple times, but you're in his head and something happens with the plane. And in his head, he says, now is the moment of my death. And the sound, you hear the, um, the metal on metal in the plane. It's, yeah. it's so powerful, uh, so powerful from a sound design perspective. Great, great film. But that roster of directors, tell me how you went about corralling those folks. Well, in addition to Barbara Streisand, who, okay. what does she make? One media appearance a decade? I know that was a big coup. Well, I'll tell you what happened. Mostly it's the sound people because these are directors who love sound and the, the, this there's sound designers got in touch with them. And then they said, yeah, you can give them that. And so I got in touch with them through the sound designers. As I said, I know um, Spielberg and Lucas through, you know, USC and the Dean and whatever. Um, but, but it was Gary Rydstrom who also, who works with, um, uh, Spielberg and does all of Spielberg shows. So, it, so a lot of it was the, the sound designers themselves who are, and then they have such close relationship. Barbara Streisand's my favorite story of the movie, I think, because I'm interviewing um, the Dolby, um, uh, Yoan Allen, right? Senior VP. Now what, he's senior vice president of Dolby because he was the one that went to Ray Dolby. They were just in music. Now you might be too young, although you did say that you used um, cassettes, uh, cassette tapes, right? And I remember when you'd be checking off like Dolby A or Dolby B, and I'd be like, "What the hell was that?" And I had no idea what it was, but it was like a noise reduction and also stereo, right? Sure. So we were listening. Um, Dolby was helping you know us listen to things better and hear better. Um, so. Yoan Allen, I'm interviewing Yoan, and he said, um, he told me that, you know, the studios didn't want to change to stereo. They didn't want, they didn't care about sound. And so, but Ray, Yoan Allen goes to Ray Dolby and, and says, Ray, why don't we get into movies? And Ray Dolby says, well, whatever, you can go check out. So Yoan Allen goes to all the studio heads and they listen and they listen. It sounds really good, you know, noise reduction and stereo, but no, we don't really need that because you can imagine the amount of money it would take, right? Of course. To, to switch over everything. And um, then Stanley Kubrick was making Clockwork Orange. Barbara Streisand was making A Star is Born. And a year later, you know, um, Lucas was making uh, Star Wars. And they all said, oh yes, we want this system. Barbara Streisand didn't know when she said, Oh yes, we want this. We want stereo. We want the crowds to sound good and all this. She didn't know that it wasn't in use. And she was so powerful and making them so much money that they said, Oh, okay, we'll use it. And they switched over. And when I, when I wrote to her and emailed to her and said, Oh, she, she goes down in film history as being one of the, you know, with Kubrick and, and Lucas and changing, you know, the history of, of set, the, the whole format of, of how we hear movies. Yeah, I no love idea. the fact that she that if I remember correctly from the film, she actually financed 
the she put up the million dollars of her own money. She she had six million dollars to do something, and she had gone through that, and she put up the additional six million dollars to get the sound where it needed to be. And then after they heard it, they were so impressed they gave her her million dollars back. Exactly. Yeah. So. I love that story. And, um, and she just loved it that, you know, she said, Oh, I'm so honored to be in the company of, you know, Lucas and Kubrick. And, um, yeah, she had no idea. It is an amazing roster of, of directors and what's so wonderful about it. In fact, there's a, um, a section where George Lucas talks about, uh, kind of how like he operates. I think he was saying something like, you know, a lot of directors, they hang out with the DP and, um, I'm over there with the sound guy. Like I, I, I was obsessive. He was obsessive about, about the sound guy and how they yeah. came up with the sound for uh, the various Star Wars characters, C-3PO and Chewbacca. Um, just amazing. Yeah. It's really so I'm fun. wondering, once you started doing sound, you know, uh, being a sound engineer. So it's not, and actually to Michael, we call it, um, so I'm a sound editor and, a, and, you know, sound designer, but sound editor and engineers are more like they set up the rooms or whatever. Got so, it. Important yeah. distinction. Thank you for yeah. pointing that out. Did you, I'm wondering if you started to hear sound, everyday sound differently. Yes. I had an awareness that, about sound and because when you're trying to think of like, you get a you can, you get a script hopefully, or you get a film and you start to think about how can I reflect plot points or, because sometimes story points, they don't have a sound. And so it's like somebody realizes or sees somebody that's from their past and, and, you know, you can actually at that moment say they're an evil person. You could like have a crow, you know, off screen effect, like crow, a crow, you know, cause, or, um, you know, a car goes by, but it like highlights that moment. And you have to think about what am I going to use? How do you reflect, you know, someone's character? And really it's about, you know, what's going on outside? You know, are you hearing, are you hearing like, um, police helicopters or are you hearing like rainbird sprinklers, which might say something about somebody's, you know, uh, socioeconomics. Um, what do the neighbors sound like? You know, <laughs> what does their dog sound like? What are they listening to in the background? So you, I started to think of that, but I started to think about how am I being affected? What does my environment sound like? Is it reflective of me? You know, what's the, and, and you know, how am I being affected by it? And it was just like, I love it that it started to give me an awareness about my sense of hearing and, and sound. It's like you're filling in the picture almost on a subconscious level. So you yeah. just mentioned the car going by or the bird. And if you're, if you're viewing that movie, oftentimes you probably aren't even aware that you're hearing that. And yet it's the difference between a scene feeling one way versus another. Yes. And you, and we do it in a way that's subtle. Like when, when you use music, it's like, you know, the filmmaker is wanting you to feel a certain way. And hopefully that music, that composed music, the score is working with the story so well that you don't realize music has come in. It's just your feelings. But, you know, I was showing a thing yesterday in a class and if you see like No Country for Old Men and it's oh, sure. when um, Josh Brolin discovers the money near the beginning. It, what's, in the, what's in the case? And he opens up the case. Now that has no interesting sound really, the little sound of the case opening up and then the money's there. 
but in almost every class, nobody hears it, but they're affected by it. And it's like, okay, he's out in like a desert, you know, in, in Texas. And so there's wind and then he goes under the tree and the guy is leaning against the tree and he's dead and you hear flies. What does that say? And everyone gets it. Oh, he's dead. It tells you that this guy is, the other guy's dead. Absolutely. He opens up the case and there's a big gust of wind. Now, if I had said it before, everyone would go, that's hokey. But nobody is aware there's a gust of wind, but they're affected. I'm sure that it hit him in their solar plexus. And, you know, you, you go like, oh, wow. You know, it's well, like in that, a, in that film in particular, that gust of wind is he opens that case. That's Pandora's box. Exactly. In, in terms of moving forward in that film. That's where his exactly. trouble begins. <laughs> exactly. And then right after when he looks at after he does that wide shot. And guess what? A thunder thunderclap before the sky is whatever and you cut to the next scene and you see that there's you know these thunderclouds but that thunder is like storms are brewing because his trouble is just starting it's and that's starting. what we yeah and so it's like you know in production design you always think about what does somebody's house look like what does their environment look like you know costume design what are they wearing how does it reflect makeup you know like an actor how what's their blocking and how do they act and and everything and it's sound we're doing the same thing we're interpreting you take the script and you figure out what am I going to put you know and it's that first thing interior house day okay what's the ambience you know what it, what are you going to say about character and so it's not just see a dog hear a dog those are the worst kind of you know that's not a sound designer that's just that might be an engineer Got oh, I'm it. sorry. Okay. To, I don't want to offend we'll you. We'll cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> but you, know, you have to be creative with sound and use it in that same so way. So you mentioned music um, a couple minutes ago. How is the right balance arrived at between? Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. Sound, sound design and and instrument, you know, a score. What's really important is that it's that the sound designer and composer talk with the director and it's really a decision for the director, but it's good for them to be in communication. So too often it's been in Hollywood anyway, it's been a separate thing. So, you know, you, you end up doing all the sound design when you know that it's like a music montage. We do it anyway. Just Also, it gives you options on the stage. Maybe they will take out music or maybe you hear a little bit of the sound underneath. But it's really good to talk to each other um, so that you know what's going on. And the directors who really care about sound and I think who are the best filmmakers are also getting in touch with their sound and their composer and their, um, their sound person, you know, early on, um, uh, actually one of my former students who actually did sound before he was, before he went on to direct more advanced projects at USC, um, was a Black Panther director and he also did Creed and he wrote that while I was in my class, uh, Ryan Coogler. And, um, I've heard Ryan say that when he, I think he says it in our movie, the first person he called in, um, when he was, went to do uh, Black Panther was, uh, his composer, who he met at USC on his very first film, they worked together and they've been working together ever since. Um, so that's a cool collaboration. But it's really thinking about sound too often, like directors, especially new directors, if they don't have a sense of sound, um, they wait until the last minute. And then that's something that we really it's that that can really hurt us or we, we aren't part of the creative um, team. So you want to kind of start that early. But I heard um, one of the best uh, composers of, of all times talk about what's the most important thing about talking a composer talking with a director and the. Uh, the, and he said, it's not the style of music that they do. It's the most important thing for a 
compose for a director to say to a composer is where are the ins and where are the outs? Where does music come and go? And why is the music there? Like, what are you using it for? So it's not just like, oh gosh, sometimes in documentaries you hear that just wallpapered music, like as if the, the filmmaker doesn't have isn't trusting their material, you yeah. know, and it's yep. just that elevator music going all the time. It's like, please, you know, so where are the ins and where are the outs? And then, um, you know, you, you, you really get a sense of, um, you know, what, what the music is trying to say, because I would say, even though music is the one thing that I don't have not touched or edited or designed in my career, it's like, it's so powerful. And if it's not used well, if it's overused or not used well, you can really, you know, you can really kind of screw up a story. Whereas I have to say, in most times, although in the mix, sometimes, you know, the producers and directors are asking things to be too loud. That's how sound can kind of screw things up. But otherwise, it's like you're usually helping the story with sound. From a sound design standpoint, what was the most challenging project that you ever worked on? Oh gosh. Um, you know, some of the, the, um, documentaries are because their material is so, but I have to say, because the material is that they're getting what they can catch as catch can. And so the environments aren't, um, aren't controlled. Sure. But, um, one thing is I would say, you know, in Armageddon, which is kind of funny, when you're out in space, of course, there would be no sound. And so you're, you're, but, um, Michael Bay definitely wanted sound in space. It wasn't a Kubrick, you know, decision. So, uh, sometimes just the amount of sound, you know, that you're doing, like, so it's thinking about like, what is that going to sound like, you know, this, this meteor out in space. And, um, that was kind of fun. That was a good challenge. You know, so what is it that they hear when they come out? And on the other end of the spectrum, can you think of any times where as a sound designer, you thought that the most important sound at this point would be silence oh, and how I, that you, silence could be used. You know, that's really, really, that's a great point to make is that sometimes that's really the most important thing is silence. And, you know, it's not really silent. It's usually, it's that it's so quiet that you can hear the single cricket or the single cricket will, will make a sound because did you ever have a cricket in your house? And it's like, if you make any sound, it, it won't sing, but also the creaking floorboards, you know, the door creaks open, Absolutely. you know, somebody's yeah. footsteps. And that's, I mean, horror, the films are, you know, really important or, um, like Eric Adol's film, um, not quiet, but what is the, the one quiet place? Can, quiet place, you know, yeah. amazing. And so there's a thing about dynamic range and dynamic range is that not every scene can be loud and not every scene should be quiet, but it's just like music where it kind of, you know, it flows quiet, louder, whatever. So that, that there's some contrast and that's how stories are told, you know, like a character changes, you know, throughout a story or it's pretty boring, you know, so it's the same thing with sound or, you know, environment or there's got to be some changes and and you want that dynamic range. Where are the loud points? Where are the quiet? Is the approach of a, of a uh, sound designer different working for something that's going to be on television versus a feature film? Now, because of television, like cable, it's amazing things are being done. Um, but it used to be, honestly, that you didn't get enough time in television. And so you were doing things, you know, you just always kind of put the same thing in. You copied stuff and pasted. But now I feel like the material is so, when you're talking cable, those, you know, 
shows are amazing and they're being done and having bigger budgets. Um, but it was really the time, time frame that we had. Uh, also though, the, the dynamic range, speaking of that, it's like, it couldn't, you could, it couldn't, it, um, it just didn't have the range, the, the highs and the lows. But I, I really feel like things, people have better, you know, the, the early on, I mean, television, you just like the, the bandwidth was so much smaller, you know, but now. I, I, I often wonder better. if, I often wonder if people who are as immersed in a particular discipline, filmmaking discipline as, as yourself, do you ever find yourself watching something and just finding the, the sound design just unacceptable and you have to stop watching it? No, I have to say this. Like I get asked this all the time. Does it ruin the movie? You know? And it's like, no, I get caught up in story. And then if I love a story, if it's to tell you the truth, if it's really good, I'll notice just, you know, if it's, but it doesn't take me out. If it's really bad, I might notice and say, it's disappointing. Um, but honestly, I get, I love movies. I love, I just love, you know, watching things. And it's like, that's what I'll do on a Friday night is I go, I love going to the theater. I love, I'll go to IMAX. I'll go to the big screen. <laughs> I'll go. I love that. And I don't necessarily, and I, and I love stories, you know, and I, I just, I don't necessarily love the big action adventure, louder films, but I, like, I loved Wonder Woman. You no, know, I love Black Panther. I love those when they have a real story behind them. And it's fun to go to listen to the sound, but I love, I realized this a couple of years ago, why do I love going to the movies so much? And it's like, I want you to tell me what you think the meaning of life is, you mm-hmm. know? What yeah. are, you know, and, and give, put me on an adventure and teach me something about a culture, about a person, about what someone went through about, you know, and that's, I feel like you can get that. And so immersive now, you know, that it's just the, I love that. There's so many great stories. Is Making Waves the first documentary that you've directed? No, you know, funny thing was that thesis that I, um, that I, that was a documentary and when that came out, I was on a PBS new director series and I was on my first union picture and I was at Paramount and I got the Hollywood reporter television review. And it was super, it was with five other films. They were shorts and they were new director series and they were from all different parts of the country, the Northeast, the Southwest that, you know, the Southeast. And I was like the, the LA or kind of the Southwest area. And, but they, but they, devoted the the article to me into my I'm super positive so I'm getting phone calls from like agents they're probably like junior agents or something and here I am on days of thunder and I'm watching like Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise fall in love outside of my outside in the parking lot practically just a day at the thinking, office yeah and I'm thinking I love this you know and I I had the bad guys um, engine that I was always anytime who bad guy whoever Tom Cruise is racing against I was responsible for that engine in that car and also all the when they did kind of the aerials of the shots like those were those were mine we had to split that up so much because we had such a short time period because they were writing that story as it was going along it was crazy but I was having so much fun and you know and I thought what's the likelihood especially as a woman that I'm going to direct and I went you know what I'm not going to follow through on these things And, and so um yeah, but you know, so but yes, this is the first. This is my first feature. Yeah, and I'm just, you know, it was such a collaborative effort. I couldn't have done it without everybody. My DP was I know her from film school. We're, she's one of my oldest friends, and um, she's been a documentary. Sandra Chandler, um, my editor, uh, 
David Turner was a student of mine. It took us nine years to make this film. He was oh, a student so at the time. He was amazing. Um, supervising it. I mean, just my producing partners, Karen Johnson and Bobette Buster. I mean, it was a team effort and uh, it was an amazing team. My supervising sound editors were two women that were former students of mine who work up at Skywalker. Um, uh, Kim Patrick and, and Bai Wei Yang. And uh, it's just so fun. So many, so many friends and um, colleagues who worked on it. Well, you hit the nail on the head in the beginning of our conversation when you talked about how it's such a collaborative effort. And what's yeah. what's so wonderful about it, too, is a collaborative effort where people seem to have so much respect for the expertise that the different craftspeople have. And that was the other thing that was so great. Like, I knew that I wanted to put that part in about the collaboration and also that it's a, um, that it's a team effort. And, um, and it was so, such a beautiful thing when, you know, when we got Ben Burt, he was interviewed. If you notice when he talks about his breakdown, right. he was not, what I did was most of the sound people I wanted black behind them for a little, like kind of bring some gravitas. And I also thought maybe I would put something, you know, like a movie or an image or something. So all the sound people are in, they have black behind them. And, um, but that was when we were in Ben's room, getting him working, doing kind of verite stuff. And now we've known him, you know, we have, we have like a three, almost four hour interview with him. It's amazing material. There's so much amazing material. And then he just came out with that because I just said, but what is it like, you know, when we, we work, you know, the long hours and the, you know, what's the toll that it takes. And um, that's when he said about, you know, he, he just one day found himself crying in his room and he couldn't work anymore. And his wife just had him come home every day for dinner. And um, he's got a really close family. And it was just like, it makes me cry. You know, it's like, I love my, my family's back East mostly. Yep. And, but my family here is the people that I worked with on, in sound, you know, and I love these people. We went through, cause you, you know, you're working so much and you go through like births and deaths of parents and grandparents and, and, um, you know, cancer and you help each other out. And, you know, you just like, you're, you're there, there there's your family. And That's so, your other family. Sure. Or the, yeah. there's the family you're born into and the family that you, you yeah. kind of construct as you move through life. Yeah. And it's important to know that, that it's like, um, you know, it's, and who do you want to work with too? It's like, that's why I have to tell my students, you know, what I think the most important thing that I teach my students is this show up on time, do what you say you're going to do when you finish your work, help out somebody else. Um, you know, that kind of thing, make your deadlines, you know, those kind of things, tell the truth, you know, be honest about things and, um, you know, treat each other well, because that's your day in and day out. And that's what I really wanted to get that um, circle of talent. Actually, Terry Dorman, who says it is one of my dear friends who I worked with many times. And uh, that was just a really great way to put it circle of talent. And we're all helping each other out and working, contributing, you know. Well, those are great rules for filmmaking and great rules for life. And I think that uh, that's probably a great spot to wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for making this great film. It's called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound. And it's on Amazon Prime and many more um, cable platforms. I can't speak highly enough of it. It's just such a wonderful viewing and listening experience. Thank you, Midge Costin.